Typically, the first day on the job is always the hardest day on the job. Typically, your first stint in a new job is the most difficult. Because even though you were qualified enough to be hired, still, it's a, it's a new rodeo, so to speak. You haven't found the rhythm. You don't know all your expectations. You don't know all you're going to encounter. And this is why whenever someone finds a job, especially you know, when parents and their children find their first job, they typically always try to encourage them, now, don't quit for at least a month. Because it's, it's going to be miserable. It's going to be very, very hard as you get to know the ropes, but eventually you'll get comfortable and you'll maybe enjoy it. So don't quit right away. Because the first time on the job is always the hardest. You lack experience. You lack training. But every now and then, there are some people who find something that just clicks. Every now and then, people step into a new position, and it's very easy right from the get-go. And by the grace of God, we see that happen with Israel's new king, Saul. If you recall from last week, after Saul was made king, there were many who did not believe he was capable of it. And so poor Saul really got off on a negative foot with so many people. He didn't have a lot of time to make rookie mistakes. He didn't have a lot of time to fall into the job, so to speak. But by the grace of God, he was presented with an opportunity to prove himself, and he does. So let's read about that. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. Although our text this morning is not incredibly long, I would still like us to break it down piece by piece, portion by portion. 1 Samuel chapter 11, we will read all 15 verses, and I would ask you to read along with me, for these are the very words of God. But for now, we will focus on just verses 1 and 2. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on Israel. Let's stop there for a moment. Israel has a new enemy. The last time we encountered an enemy of Israel, it was the Philistines to the southeast. But now they have another enemy to the northwest. This would be modern-day Jordan, or the east of the Jordan, really. So I've, I think I've switched that up. I apologize. I'm backward here. To the east of the Jordan was the nation of Ammon, the Ammonites. Now, this is not the first time Israel has had an encounter with the Ammonites. If you read through the book of Judges, as Israel was going into the land... They had asked the Ammonites to peacefully march through. They didn't want to take their land. They didn't want to fight. They just wanted to peacefully march through Ammon to their land. And they were suspicious of this. And so they went out to war with Israel. And they lost. And so then Israel took some of their land. And then that caused dissension and bickering between them for a long time. And now we see the Ammonites pressing against Israel again. Led by their king, the evil Nahash. And what has happened is there's a small northern tribe of Israel, forgive me, a northern city of Israel, Jabesh Gilead, who again in the book of Judges has a bit of a bad reputation to it, but we won't get into that now. And apparently Nahash has seized this city, and after he seized it, the people of, of Jabesh wanted to make a treaty with him. In other words, in order to spare their lives, they said, just let's make a, a, a deal. We will be your servants if, if you spare us our lives. So they want to kind of come into a deal. They, so in other words, the writing is on the wall for them. They've lost. 
It's over. They're just doing their best at this point to salvage some semblance of, of life and peace. And Nahash says, this is the only treaty I want to make with you, that not only will you serve me, but I am going to gouge out the right eyes and brings disgrace on all Israel. What is happening here is the men of Israel are going to have their right eyes gouged out. And the reason that this would bring disgrace onto Israel is because, well, number one, I mean, it's a sign of victory. But what most scholars think is happening here is the way that people were trained to fight during this day was your right eye was used for aiming. And your left eye was shielded with, with your shield. And so you were trained. You basically had to be right-eyed. You know, we talk about right, hand, right and left-handed. You had to be right-eyed, so to speak. Uh, there was no other way. So when your right eye was gouged out, you were no longer fit for military service. And so back then, that essentially caused the men to be counted among the women and children. Right? You go out to war, the women and children to go out, they stay back. So protect the women and children and the men with their right eyes gouged out. So this was an act of disgrace. This was emasculating these men. And as well as, I, I've, I don't know about you, I've never had my right eye gouged out, but I am, can imagine it's probably not a very pleasant or fun experience. So Nahash wants to torture these men. And we see the evil of Nahash in these first two verses. Because he's not just evil because he's trying to conquer another nation. He's not just evil because he wants to torture these men by gouging their eyes out. But we see specifically that he is in the business of humiliation. Right? He, he goes along and he tells them, I want to do this to humiliate Israel. Right? He doesn't see Israel as just a necessary enemy that he has to conquer in order to get where he's going. This is personal. He wants to humiliate them. We'll see a little bit more of his cockiness in a second. But I want to share an interesting historical tidbit we have. Uh, a little while ago, we did, for Sunday school, we did just a couple uh, series on the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a relatively recent find in the Middle East, but they contained, among other things, some very, very old copies of large parts of our Old Testament. And 1 Samuel is one of the things we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, very, very ancient. And what's interesting is the Dead Sea Scrolls, chapter 10 ends just a little bit differently, and there's a whole paragraph that begins chapter 11 that didn't make its way into what we call the Masoretic texts or the Septuagint, which are two primary texts that our Bibles translate from. So there's a debate in the scholarly community as whether what I'm about to read to you should be in the Bible or should not be. I would argue at the end of the day, it doesn't really, it doesn't change our view of Scripture, it doesn't change any of our theology, it doesn't even change our view of this story. But I'm going to read this to you as a minority position thinks this is Scripture. But I think that it's rather just really, really helpful historical information. So at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 10 in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we are told that all this take, took place a month later. So it tells us that from the time that Saul is made king, about a month passes before Nahash starts gouging out, trying, wanting to gouge out the eyes of the men of Jabesh. And this is what it reads in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously, gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh Gilead. So what this historical information is telling us, 
is that apparently this siege had kind of already started to happen. Nahash was already conquering certain Israelites and gouging out the eyes of right men, but word was not spreading very quickly because he was not allowing deliverers. And so among the refugees who, who found a, a safe place in Jabesh, Nahash takes over Jabesh as well. And so what this might actually be indicating to us, if you remember, as we've been looking at the development of the monarchy, remember what was like the number one pressing issue for why Israel wanted a king? Well, they wanted someone to lead them in battle, someone to fight their wars. And the reason I think that this is probably historically fairly accurate is because that helps make sense of the picture here. Because it didn't make sense that we went from the Philistines attack Israel and God alone destroys them. And then the very next narrative, granted it was some years later, but nonetheless the very next narrative is Israel crying out, we need a king, who's going to defend us from our enemies? Like what are you talking about? God just did. Now that doesn't get them off the hook, they should, still should have known that. But I think what was likely happening was Nahash was already beginning this conquest. He was already torturing people and they were under the impression of apparently God's not helping us. And since he allowed no deliverer, clearly Israel was not unified enough for word to get out quickly. I mean, they were just finding out about this and so they were thinking, this, this system of government we have here, it's not capable of defending us from a guy like Nahash. We need a more unified military existence so word gets out quicker. So I think that Nahash had already begun this and this was part of why Israel wanted a king in the first place. And now he is overtaking Jabesh, but something interesting happens. What happens? Look at me in verse 3. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And so, let's read verse 4 as well. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So this is where I think Nahash is starting to get a little cocky. He's starting to get arrogant. We are told in the Dead Sea Scrolls that whenever he would overtake someone or take a city or a tribe, he would allow them no deliverer. But here they ask, let us send word. Don't gouge our eyes out. Don't kill us. Let's just see if Israel will come to our aid. And Nahash makes a very poor military decision at this point. He says, sure. Maybe Nahash, I don't know, maybe he knows that Jabed is, has a bad reputation among Israel. But for some reason, he's gotten arrogant. He wants to see Israel turn on these people. Or maybe he's just ready to fight. Bring your armies. Bring them. I'd love to slaughter them too. We don't know his intentions, but for some reason, he makes a very poor military strategy. He says, okay, you've got seven days to muster your army. And so word gets out. And specifically, word gets out to Gibeah, where Saul lives. And so let's hear what happens with Saul. Verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, 
and the men of Judah, 30,000. So word gets to Gebeah, but Saul's not present as the messengers show up. Now, why isn't he present? What does the text say? He's out with the oxen. This is an indication yet again that this is probably a very short time period from when he was inaugurated as king to this moment. And why do I say that? Because how did we end last week? Remember the theme last week was that there was no grand celebration. There was no throne, no crown. What is the king of Israel doing? The same thing, his same job before he was king of Israel. He's back at home, back at his dad's place, tending to his dad's cattle. The king of Israel is still farming his dad's land. He's really not much of a king yet, is he? Clearly, we see not very many of the people are really gathering around him like he's a king. It was just like, okay, he's a king. Okay, go home and don't be a king. (laughs) So he's off farming as he hears word that his nation is under serious attack. He sees the people weeping and he says, what is going on? And they tell him, and how does he respond? Well, it's pretty amazing what the text tells us. The Holy Spirit came upon him and kindled his anger. We have any outdoorsmen here? Any campers here? What is it? What's a kindle? It makes the fire grow hotter and bigger. Saul probably had some anger and the Holy Spirit said, that's not enough. You need more anger. And so the Holy Spirit miraculously kindles his flame. It gives kindle to his fire. The Holy Spirit has made him angry. This is going to be important. We'll come back to this. But it briefly tells us this, though. Anger is not in and of itself sinful. Anger is in and of itself dangerous. It leads to sin very easily. That's why the New Testament, Paul tells us, do not let the sun go down on your anger lest you give the devil a foothold for you. So what is he saying? That if you live with constant anger, if you have anger and you don't do something about to putting it out in a righteous way, then you are giving the devil traction in your life. You're giving him a foothold. You're giving him something to grab onto. So anger is a very dangerous emotion, but it is not a sinful emotion. As we were doing our confession of sin, we read the famous verse that describes God as slow to anger. God doesn't throw temper tantrums. God does not have childish fits of anger. He is slow, patient, But notice, that verse is not saying he is angerless. He's slow to it, but he gets there when he needs to. Anger is a divine emotion of God. And so here we have Saul who needed anger. He needed an appropriate amount of anger. And so the Spirit leads him and kindles his anger. And so from his anger... He finally does, God finally gives to the people what they've been asking for. A unifying military presence. He takes some of the ox that he was just using and he chops them up. And he sends those pieces throughout Israel. And he says, this is going to happen to your cattle if you don't come fight. Which, by the way, to them was very close to a death sentence. It's very, very hard for people who are entirely reliant upon these beasts this, this would have been a very, very severe punishment. Very severe punishment, which would have also come with national scorn. He threatens them to fight. And it works. The text tells us the fear of God came upon them. 
And then in verse 8, they gather by the thousands. Saul is kindled in his anger at this report, and Israel is coming to Jabesh's need. Saul is leading the people into battle. And so, how does this battle go for them? Let's read verses 9 through 11. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that not two of them were left together. So Saul, the Holy Spirit has come upon him, and he is not only greatly angry now, but he even shows the people of God a great military prowess. He is very, very, he does what Nahash doesn't do, and he's actually a very wise military commander. First and foremost, he breaks them up into groups, which we actually saw happen in the Old Testament. So he's learned from the traditions of his fathers. He's learned from the scriptures. He knows how to fight. He breaks them up strategically. They engage in a sneak attack. And the best part about it is what the text tells us in verse 10. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do whatever seems good to you. I know the text doesn't tell us this explicitly, but it's hard for me to imagine that this was not what Israel told them to say. The messengers met with Saul. They met with Israel, and, they, and Israel said, we're, we're going to help you. And, we're, and they told them when they're going to help you. And I just can't help but think it was their idea, probably Saul's idea, to, to, here's what you need to tell them. And here's why I say that. Because even how the messengers report back to Nahash is an incredibly brilliant military strategy. And you want to know what it's called? In the Bible, we call this deceit. We don't have time now, but one of these days, I actually do plan on preparing a sermon for you called Righteous Deception. All throughout Scripture, we have the people of God being rewarded for being deceitful. How was, according to the book of James, how was Rahab the prostitute justified when she sent the men out the wrong way? Remember that story? The Israelites are hiding behind enemy lines and there's a prostitute who's hiding them. But she says, I fear your God. I'm on your team. And they say, great. And so she sneaks them out and then messengers come to her home looking for the men she was hiding. And she said, oh, they went that way. She lied. And then guess what James chapter 2 says about that lie? Was not Rahab the prostitute justified when she sent the men out by the other way? And I could give you countless examples of righteous deception. And we have a righteous deception here. The people go to Nahash and what do they tell him? We surrender. We surrender. Tomorrow, uh, the time is up. So we're going to come out to you tomorrow and you can do what's fit to you. They give the impression, maybe they don't explicitly lie, but they certainly are attempting to give the impression that help is not coming. Tomorrow is the deadline. And so we're going to come out to you and you can do what seems best to you. Now again, I call this deception because that's not technically a lie. 
Your Bible might even say the word surrender. But the Greek, the ver- or forgive me, the Hebrew, the very literal translation is what the ESV says. We will come out to you. That's all they tell them. Tomorrow, we're going to come out to you and you can do what you seem best. That's not actually a lie. That happened. In the morning, they did go out to the Ammonites. Them and hundreds of thousands of troops with them. In the morning, when the Ammonites weren't expecting them because they thought they surrendered. You see Saul's brilliance here? You see his competence here? He leads the people and they slaughter, they destroy the Ammonites. This is such a decisive victory that almost all of them are dead and there's so few that aren't dead that as they escape, there's not two of them together. Just a couple individuals are getting out. Early in the morning till the heat of the day, which is in the afternoon, for half of the day, Saul is leading a decisive victory over the Ammonites. So how do the people respond? And then we'll talk about what the Lord wants us to do with this text. Verses 12 through 15. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So the first thing that happens, decisive victory, glory to God. And then everyone looks at Saul and they say, you know what, we were wrong about this guy. He's a competent warrior. But you know what, I remember there was a small contingency of people who didn't think that. Remember last week they despised him, they paid him no homage, they gave him no present. Who are those people? They deserve to die. And you know what? They might be right. They might be right. But how does Saul respond? Verse 13, no man shall be put to death today. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul responds with mercy. The same Saul who just spent an entire morning and afternoon mercilessly slaughtering people immediately steps off the battlefield and says it's time for mercy that's interesting the text doesn't tell us much about his intentions behind this he tells us for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel maybe he's just saying let's not ruin a good day right guys <laughs> things went well today we're all happy we're all celebrating let's, let's not ruin a good day But I think he's saying something more profound than that. I don't think Saul is saying, listen, guys, we we won today. Let's not not end the day with an execution. I don't think he's saying that because he could have executed them later. I think Saul is rather saying this. God gave us victory today. What does that mean? That means even though we just got done rebelling against him. Remember what Samuel said when Samuel instituted Saul? We are only here because you have rejected your king. We just got done rebelling against God. How easy would it have been to interpret the Ammonites as judgment from God? So maybe as Saul is about to fight the Ammonites, what's going on in his head is God is going to slaughter us for our disobedience. And Saul probably understood we deserve it. We rejected God, so maybe he's rejected us. But he didn't. 
They rejected their king and yet God showed mercy. And so what I think Saul is saying is, God showed mercy on us today when we rejected him. So who am I to turn to these men who rejected me and not show them mercy? If I treated these men, or if I treat these men the way you want me to, if God had treated us that way, the Ammonites win. God has shown mercy on Israel today, so I am going to show mercy on Israel today. So no executions. And instead they gather to renew the kingdom. And we finally get the ending we were robbed of last week. Sacrifices, worship, celebration. They renewed the kingdom. And that term renewed is important because what tells us is what happened last week was not false. It was not invalid. Saul was truly made king. But because they did not respond to it the right way, because they fell away from that commitment, they needed to renew it. It's just kind of like when some, some couples, it's not super popular, but there are lots of couples who will actually renew their wedding vows. You know, maybe 20, 30 years after they've been married, they will have another ceremony and they will repeat their vows. And the purpose of that is not to say that the first time we made the vows, they were invalid. But a lot of times it's just a helpful way to renew those vows, to re-remember them, to keep you from falling from them. So that's what they do. They go and they renew the kingdom and I would submit to you, just as a brief side note, before we put all this together, that I want you to think of every single Lord's Day worship as renewing the kingdom. This is what we do every single Sunday. We come here to renew the kingdom. We don't come here to say, Jesus is not actually Lord, let's make him Lord. We don't come here to say, okay, now we know that Jesus is Lord and he's worthy. We already know that. That's already happened. That's already been established. But... Hebrews 3.13 tells us to encourage each other as long as the day is long so that your hearts are not corrupted by the deceitfulness of sin. The people of God recognize that during the week, it is our human temptation to slowly and gradually harden our hearts against our covenant head. And this is why we have to encourage each other daily. And this is why the book of Hebrews also says to not neglect the gathering as is the habit of some. It is so important for us to come together consistently, regularly, encourage one another so that we, our hearts are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do not neglect the gathering. And so let me just be this reminder to you that Sunday morning worship, regular attendance in Sunday morning worship is very, very important. Not just because it's a commandment, but the commandment is there for a reason. Your heart needs it. If you want to help avoid the gradual hardening and deceitfulness of sin, you need believers to encourage you every day. And you need to not neglect the gathering. Sunday morning worship is so important. This is where we come together to offer our sacrifices, to sing and rejoice and renew the kingdom. To remember the vows we've made to our Lord and King Jesus Christ. And so we get the juicy end that we missed last week. Saul has proven himself in the first month of the job capable. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this, if you will? What's the message here? Are we just supposed to say, wow, Saul's so great and go home? I want us to look at this. How does the text, clearly what the text is trying to do is it's trying to show us the competency and goodness of Saul. At least at this point, 
Later on, maybe not be the case. But at this point, Saul is a good king. Saul is a king that Israel wants to have. They're glad to have Saul as king. And so I want us to think of, what does the text show us in Saul that makes him good? What are the competencies we see of his being a good king? So in other words, the text is kind of giving us, if you will, a grand uh, high bird's eye view of what are some of the most important qualities in a good king. What do we want to see in a good king? And I think the text tells us two things. Two things that many people think are contradictory. Two things that people think can't belong together. Two qualities, two aspects of a good king are wrath and mercy. What do we see? What makes Saul such a hero in this text? Well, there's two things. Wrath and mercy. The text clearly tells us about the wrath of Saul. Verses 1 through 12. His anger is kindled. He chops up the ox. He threatens Israel. He leads them into war. They slaughter their enemies. The whole beginning of this narrative is about the anger and wrath of Saul. But Samuel included 12 through 15 for a reason. Because at this point we have to ask the question, what's the difference between Saul and Nahash? Are they both just angry, bloodthirsty men? So the text shows us Saul has an incredible anger and wrath to him, but he is able to counterbalance that with an incredible mercy and compassion. He is both wrathful and compassionate. He is angered and merciful. What is it that we want in a king? We want a king who is appropriately wrathful. We want a king who shows wrath when it needs to be shown. And he distributes it justly. Let me remind you that what Saul did was the perfect and appropriate response. When a foreign nation starts capturing your people and gouging their eyeballs out, you do not respond with tariffs. You do not respond with taxes. You do not respond with boycotts. You don't even say, well, let's meet for some healthy diplomatic relations. You go to war. This was an act of war. We saw the cockiness of Nahash. Yeah, send out your messengers. I want them to see you humiliated. The people needed defending. They didn't need policy. They didn't need debate. They needed a defender. Saul didn't just slap him on the wrist, which would have been an, a, a response in the low way. He responded exactly how he should have. He was appropriately wrathful. And then when they gathered for celebration, he was appropriately merciful. We want a good king who is both full of wrath and at the same time, full of mercy. And so we have to ask this question. We've been for three, two, three weeks now talking about how Christ Jesus is our king. Can I ask you this rhetorically? Is Jesus wrathful and merciful? Do we see in Jesus a greater Saul? And I would argue with you, yes. I want us to spend most of our time on the wrath of Jesus. Jesus is both wrathful and merciful. I want to show you something here. This is about the triune God more specifically, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. This is such an interesting 
text. As a matter of fact, I had the opportunity to preach this one time. And uh, before I was ordained to be the pastor here, this was one of the sermons that the pastoral committee looked at. And they brought it up in my meeting. Because admittedly, I was, uh, I was a little intense when I preached this. I thought it was going to lose me the job. So I'm going to try to settle myself down now. But let me tell you what just happened in, in Exodus chapter 15. The Israelites have been freed from Egypt. And they have just witnessed Pharaoh's army chasing them down through the parted waters. And then what happens? The waters suddenly are not parted anymore. And they all drown and they all die. And as the Israelites are standing peacefully on the shore, watching human beings made in the image of God drown to death, how do they respond? Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. The fa my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. He has chosen officers. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who was like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by, to the people pass by whom you have purchased. We'll stop there. I probably didn't need to read that much. I think you get the point. But I wanted to read it. How did they respond to the Israelites? They had a worship night. We, in our country, we, I, I've been doing college stuff for a long time, especially young people. I'm not saying older people don't, but especially long, young people. They love what we call worship nights. And that's just where people just get together and sing. We'll sing for hours. What are some of the things that causes us to sing? Well, we'll get more of this in a minute, but usually it's not that God has shattered the teeth of our enemies. But that was the good news for Israel. That's what made Israel break into song. 
What, who was the God they were worshiping? Exodus 15:3, the Lord is a man of war. The wrath of God was not an embarrassment to Israel. It was their joy and their salvation. They embraced the wrath of God. It was good news to them. It was not just this unfortunate side of God that we have to deal with in evangelism. Yeah, I know, okay, God is kind of rough in the Old Testament. I know, I'm sorry. And I know hell is really, yeah, that's, we don't like it either. I'm sorry, guys. Like, just still be a Christian, please. You know, we can, we can reinterpret that stuff. Uh, just, let's just make the Old Testament a metaphor. And uh, hell's not actually real. It's, it's a metaphor. There, there. Now we have a nice God. We are so often embarrassed by a man of war who leads his people into battle and slaughters the Ammonites. But Israel wasn't embarrassed by that. They rejoiced in that. Israel wasn't embarrassed when Pharaoh was destroyed. They rejoiced in that. Because God regularly shows himself in the Old Testament as a warrior, as a defender of the innocent, of the righteous, and of the weak. This is why, by the way, contemporary scholars, unbelieving contemporary scholars, love, they just love to talk about how, and by the way, they, they're not the first, uh, a heretic named Marcion was doing this in the second century. But they love to present this Marcion idea that there is no compatibility between the Jesus of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. Because what happens is we read, we just read 1 Samuel 15, and let me tell you, 1 Samuel 15 is actually pretty tame. Not just to the whole of Old Testament, but even to 1 Samuel. It's, it's going to get worse. It's going to get more violent. It's going to get worse. And so people read through the Old Testament and they see this angry, wrathful God who destroys people. And then we get to Jesus and he's a hair model. He just floats around with his beautiful long hair and tells everyone how much he loves them and he hugs them. He's so sweet and mild-mannered and gentlemanly. And so how do we fit this together, this wrathful, angry, vitriolic, vengeful Old Testament God with meek, mild, pleasant, kind little Jesus? Now, I have two answers to that. The first answer to that is that there is supposed to be a shift from carnal warfare to spiritual warfare in the New Testament. Remember, the Old Testament speaks to us, it's literal real history, but one of the primary ways it speaks to us is through what we call typology. So physical, historical, carnal things happen which become typological of spiritual realities. And I believe that the warfare of the Old Testament is typological for spiritual warfare in the New Testament. Almost any time you read the Old Testament, you hear the people of God talking about salvation, being saved. If you read the context, it's usually physical. It's usually not like God has saved my soul from hell. It's usually God has saved us from our enemies. We saw that in Exodus 15. They're talking about the Lord as their salvation. What are they talking about? From Pharaoh. So all throughout the Old Testament, we have God showing himself as the redeemer and the one who protects and defends and saves people. And usually, not all the time, usually that's in the context of physical salvation. And then in the New Testament, we have God being presented the same way. The saver of his people, but we suddenly mean it now spiritually. 
And so there is, to some degree, a shift. We do see a lot more of God judging nations and judging people and pouring out wrath in the Old Testament than we do in the New because there was supposed to be a transition from the carnal to the spiritual. This is why in, you can write down, for time's sake, we won't turn there, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, the cross of Jesus Christ is described as putting the enemies, namely Satan, the angelic enemies, the demonic enemies, the cross triumphed over them, disarming the rulers and authorities. So Jesus dies on a cross, and Paul interprets that as a man going into war and crushing Satan. Now that will happen, but that actually hasn't happened yet. So, so Paul sees this as a spiritual battle. Satan has been conquered and triumphed over spiritually. We also see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Where Paul has that famous saying where he says, For we are Christian soldiers, we do fight, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But we take hostage every thought that raises itself up against God. We destroy strongholds. So Paul uses very militaristic language. Taking hostage, destroying strongholds, fighting with weapons. But he says, but this is not carnal battle. This is not carnal fighting. And this all makes sense to us because of the pattern God laid in the Old Testament. So there is a shift between the Old and the New Testament. Between how much carnal warfare we see God raging versus the spiritual warfare we see God raging. So there is a little bit of a shift. But the second point I would argue to you is that this shift is highly made dramatic among most people. We still see a lot of wrath specifically from Jesus in the New Testament. The same Jesus who flipped the tables over in the temple, made a, made a whip out of cords, and whipped people out of the temple. The same Jesus who looked the Pharisees straight in the face and called them broods of vipers and whitewashed tombs. The same Jesus who, when was confronted with the Tower of Siloam that fell and killed a bunch of people, responded by saying, yeah, good riddance, and if you don't repent, it's happening to you. These are all from Jesus. This isn't me. This is the same Jesus who in Revelation 19 is described as a man of war who returns one day with a sword coming out of his mouth on a white horse leading an angelic army to destroy nations and cast Hades into hell. That's New Testament. That's not Old Testament. I would argue to you that the Jesus of the New Testament, the one whom he says, the Father has given me all judgment, was why at the end of time we stand before Jesus. He's our judge. He is presented as being equally wrathful, appropriately wrathful against sin and sinners alike as the God of the Old Testament. The reason we don't want to believe that is because we live in a very therapeutic age. It's very important for us to emphasize. I want you to keep tracking with me here. I know we're coming down to the end of our time, but this is very, very important. This is especially for our children right now. Because we live in a culture that is very antagonistic to this side of God. I recently read a book by a theologian named Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And this is how he described the contemporary age we live in. We live in the age of the therapeutic. Where psychological well-being is deemed to be the very purpose of life. And where happiness in the present moment is our overwhelming priority. 
This sentiment was echoed by Rod Dreher, the author of another book I recently read called Live Not By Lies, who described more narrowly our Christian culture like this. He says, Christianity has become a shallow self-help cult whose chief aim is not cultivating discipleship, but rooting out personal anxiety. The God of the American culture today is not a man of war. He's a therapist. Christianity has become obsessed with shallow, feel-good, self-help religion. Let me just give you one example. I could make examples abound until you just got up and left. But let me just give you one example. This is a brand new song that was just released. Within 10 hours, it had 9 million views. This is a brand new song people are just obsessed with. Let me read to you just the verses. It's just the verses of the song. These are what people are singing in church all across the country today. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. I wasn't holding you up, so there's nothing I can do to let you down. It doesn't take a trophy to make you proud. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. I'm going through a storm, but I won't go down because I hear your voice carried in the rhythm of the wind to call me out. You've never been closer than you are right now. I don't want to forget how I feel right now. On the mountaintop, I can see so clear what it's all about. Stay by my side when the sun goes down because I don't want to forget how I feel right now. You hear that? What is this Christianity here? God makes me feel good. God really loves me. And he thinks I'm great. And he thinks I'm so special. Who is God in this song? He's my teddy bear. And I snuggle him at night and he snuggles me and he just tells me I'm so great. I am so wonderful. And he just, oh gosh, he just loves me and I love the way I feel. And then we wonder, as we see our culture collapsing around us, totalitarianism rising from the sea, and we dare to ask questions like, where's the church? They were never catechized in a holistic Christian religion that was capable of discerning and dissecting the world around them. They've never been taught how Christianity applies to anything else around them except for how great they are. Now, let me say, let me qualify this. Let me be nuanced here. Self-esteem is good. Okay, we as Christians don't want to become in this kind of hyper-puritanical world where we just hate ourselves all the time. There is a place in the Christian worldview. There is a place in the Christian religion for reminding ourselves that even when the world insults us and mocks us and makes fun of us and looks down upon us, that we are loved and cherished by God. That's a good message, and I want you to hear it, and I want you to have it. And I want your children to hear it. And I want them to cling to it when other petty kids bully them. This is an important message. But it's an aspect of Christianity which has engulfed everything else. And we no longer sing songs of what God has done for us in history. We no longer sing songs of who God is and all of his characteristics and attributes. We just sing about how much he loves me. But that's a Christianity that's not ready for the world. It's not even really true Christianity. We have sacrificed all meaningful theology to make people happy. And so here's what happens. We, we catechize our children to fall in love with the teddy bear God. 
And then they go off to college with this God in their head that they love. And then their professor opens up the Bible to Exodus 15 and says, Oh, you think God is so loving and cuddly and warm? He just slaughtered a lot of people here. What do you think of that? God has killed women and children before. Did you know that? What happened in Egypt before this? The Holy Spirit went through the land killing children. And you know what they say? That doesn't sound like a teddy bear. That's not the God I learned to love. And now we've lost him. And why did we lose him? Because we failed to see we never really had them. Because they were never taught to glory in the wrath of God. Because I want us to hear that this is good news. This is objectively good news. What I mean by that is when we talk about the wrath of God, it's too easy for us to fall into a place where we're just trying to poke at our embarrassing culture. Like, why do you love the wrath of God? Because it lets me make fun of other churches. That can't be why the wrath of God is a good thing for us. I, and that's my temptation. But even if our culture was not a self-help cult, this would still be good news. Why is it objectively good news? Because this is our reminder that we too, no matter what culture you live in, you are a person who needs defending. Spiritually and physically, the Christian church needs a defender. What did we learn from Israel? They were desperate for a defender. We have enemies on all sides of us. Can someone come and protect us? And that's what Saul did, and that is typological of what God does. The Christian church has enemies, both carnal and spiritual, surrounding us at all sides. And a teddy bear God is not capable of being any comfort in those moments. He'll make you feel good as you're slaughtered. But our God is not a teddy bear, He's a warrior. He leads the Christian church into war and he protects us and he defends us so that the gates of hell shall never prevail against us. The wrath of God is a glorious thing. Let us sing about it. Let us end very briefly. This is the part that we get really well. So we'll spend less time here. But here's what I don't want us to do. Okay, wrath of God. Get it. Good. He's wrathful. So is he Nahash then? Nahash is wrathful. Is God Nahash or is he Saul? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Lest I just led you to believe that the triune God of Scripture is nothing but... An angry, mad, wrathful God. Hear these words from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You deserve wrath. So does the wrathful God, did he pour it out on you? Because he's wrath, right? Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love of 
with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The same warrior God who leads us into battle, destroys our enemies, and conquers our foe is the same God who turns toward us with mercy and kindness and compassion and love. Saul was able to be wrathful against the Ammonites, but gracious with Israel. God is wrathful with his enemies, but he is gracious and merciful to us. Do you see that God is a God that is full of love and compassion towards you? Yes, he is wrathful, appropriately so, but he is full of love, mercy, and grace. Before we sing, I want us to conclude this way. Drew, if you wouldn't mind turning to the next slide. We were going to sing the song, but I wanted us to meditate on these lyrics. This is an old hymn. Onward, Christian soldiers. I want you to read these words along with me before we transition to the Lord's Supper and to song. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banners go. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. And then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, let your anthems raise. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. Long as earth endureth, men the faith will hold. Kingdoms, nations, empires in destruction rolled. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane. But the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise and that cannot fail. Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng. Blend with ours your voices in the triumph song. Glory, laud, and honor unto Christ the King. This, through countless ages, men and angels sing. 